let's be real. Lawsuits are no fun, but with Paulson and Nace, at least they are a little easier. With two DC-born partners, Paulson and Nace will fight for you the way only a Washingtonian could. Paulson and Nace handles medical malpractice, wrongful death, and other complex injury cases involving negligence. So if you have been hurt or lost a loved one because of someone else's mistake or negligence, call Paulson and Nace for a no-obligation consultation. Visit www.paulsonandnace.com or call 202-463-1999. I have exciting news. This week, our team won not one, not two, but three Dateline Awards from the Society of Professional Journalists. So we wanted to share one of the episodes that won. I hope you enjoy it. Today on CityCast DC, when Kojo Namdi moved to DC, this is long before he was a radio legend, the city didn't even get to choose its own mayor. Now he's here with Bridget and me to talk about what DC the state could look like. We recorded this last fall before the elections that have made it slightly less likely that that's going to happen immediately, but we wanted to offer Kojo's perspective all the same. Today is Thursday, June 15th. I'm Michael Schaefer, and this is CityCast DC. Hey, Kojo, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Mike. Got to talk to you. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. This is so intimidating. We've got Kojo Namdi <laughs> on the podcast. <laughs> Audio legend. <laughs> intimidating for me. <laughs> well, we, we, we intend to keep it intimidating. <laughs> so uh, we want to talk about statehood. And, you know, it's such a cliche to talk about in D.C., but I feel like understanding the push for it is made a little bit easier when you go back to what it was like even before the sort of half status we have now. And the last time you and I talked, we talked about your earliest days in Washington, which I think, if I'm not mistaken, was before even the version of home rule that we currently enjoy. Absolutely correct. When I got here in 1969, we had a mayor, Walter Washington, who was an appointed mayor. There was a, an almost visible sense of powerlessness that you saw in the District of Columbia. However, when I got here in 1969, it coincided with a certain rise in the black power movement in D.C. And so, despite the fact that we didn't have an elected mayor, we didn't have an elected councilor. In those days, the only elected body we had was the Board of Education. But there was a rising sense of activism that was based on the outrage over all of this. And as I said, it was like on the tail end, so to speak, of the Black Power era. So you had activists who had come out of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, like Marion Barry, who was founding an organization called Pride Incorporated. And he and the co-founder of that organization were also involved in all kinds of demonstrations having to do with how they saw the police treating residents of the community, and a lot of demonstrations having to do with the fact that we did not have home rule and we did not have any power. So there was a lot of activity going on and a lot of that activity was centered around trying to achieve uh, more power for DC voters. Was the city like well governed? I mean, did the water work and were the streets cleaned? And, you know, by our sort of contemporary standards of this is a city that works versus this is one that doesn't, did it work okay? 
Yes, the city worked okay. You know, being someone who came from a British colony, I was raised in what was British Guiana and is now Guyana. There's always the same question about whether or not the country was run more efficiently when the British ran it or now after independence when we run it. And that's comparable to the situation in D.C. Was the city run more efficiently when it was controlled by the federal government or is it run more efficiently now? Well, during the time when I first got here in the late 1960s, it was run fairly efficiently. I happen to think that it's run better now than it was at that time because I think people feel more empowered and therefore more engaged in governance of the city. And I think that's, a, that's what has led to some of the significant improvement that people starting from the advisory neighborhood commissioners all the way up to the office of mayor, you find different levels of engagement that people are permitted today that were not permitted before. And so there's an insistence that things be run properly and people now know exactly who to appeal to in order to get things to run properly. So I do think that the city is, is run better now than it was prior to home rule. Growing up in a colony, you, it must have been like the shock of recognition that this is a place where the cops and the school teachers and ever no like people do not answer to the citizens they supposedly serve. Exactly right. There was a distinct familiarity to me when I got here about the colonial situation that I had left and the situation here in Washington, D.C. And, and that's what you heard from all of the leading activists in the city, this sense of powerlessness on the one hand and this determination to achieve power on the other hand. It was what was behind the movement that led to home rule, and it's now what is behind the movement for statehood here in D.C. I'm curious, what do you think it means like on a day-to-day level for your average Washingtonian that we don't have statehood? Like, how do you think that's felt? How do you think it affects us sort of for better or for worse on a day-to-day level of just like how we're living our lives in D.C.? I always tell people that you don't understand Washington until you understand that it's not just the nation's capital. It's a city of neighborhoods. It's a city where when people meet you, if you're from Washington, they want to know what high school you went to, they want to know what neighborhood you grew up in, and that's where you feel the push for statehood coming from. It's from people who have been living in this city and who live in neighborhoods and who know that for all of this time, we had to struggle to achieve home rule, and now we're struggling to achieve statehood. You talk to the average native Washingtonian or the average person who's been in Washington for more than a few weeks, you'll begin to understand that everybody who lives in the city senses this, feels it, talks about it on a regular basis. Now, don't get me wrong, there are some people who live in Washington who do not want statehood, but I think you'd find that they are a distinct minority. What we as residents of D.C. want is the ability to have a vote in the Congress of the United States, is the ability to have two senators and the abilities to have a member of Congress who has a vote on a regular basis because we know that that will expand our influence. And we feel that given the levels of education and income that proliferate in Washington and given the diversity that that this city now has, we feel that we can make a huge difference in what happens in the nation. And I think you, you find that when you talk to most Washingtonians, this sense of frustration that despite the fact that we're running a city government that consistently 
has a budget that is balanced, that consistently do, does everything the right way, why is it that for some reason or the other we're still being denied statehood? There's a sense of rage and outrage that I think you'll find that permeates residents of Washington, D.C. in that regard. It's time to get dressed up, D.C. So Others Might Eat is having its Young Professionals Network Spring Soiree that's to help raise funds for homelessness in D.C. The gala is on the evening of May 17th at the National Museum of Women in the Arts. There will be live music from DJ Heat from the Washington Wizards, photo booths, food, and even a special appearance by a former actor from Pretty Little Liars. Wow! There will also be a canned food drive, so be sure to bring a few cans to support Sum's Food Pantry. Grab tickets before they're gone at sum.org slash spring soiree. That's S-O-M-E dot O-R-G slash spring soiree. See you there. It's weird. For a long time, the push for statehood was kind of animated by this idea that Washington, in addition to its own residents, it would be like a symbolic state representing black urban America. And as the city's demographics have changed, it's less of a clear-cut symbol of any one uh, demographic or type of place. But that other piece you mentioned, that this is like actually like a place that's much more competently run than many American states, uh, the insult factor has just sort of migrated a little bit. It's not the, quite the same insult as it was 30, 40 years ago. Well, you know, 30, 40 years ago, then a member of Congress, Walter Fauntroy, used to say that the reason that they won't give us statehood is because we're too urban, we're too Democrat, and we're too black. Now, at least one of those factors has changed significantly. Blacks no longer make up a majority in this city. But then again, even though we're no longer majority black, when people who are not of this city look at this city, they invariably see that we have an African-American mayor. They invariably see that we have a lot, if not a majority, of African-Americans on the council. And they see a lot of African-Americans who are in positions of influence in the city or maybe run the city. So that's not entirely off the plate. But what has clearly taken greater prominence in the minds of those who oppose statehood is that despite the fact that the city is no longer chocolate city, as we used to call it, it is still seen as a Democrat leftist progressive city. And for those people who want to deny a statehood, that means two Democratic senators and a Democrat congressperson, and that those people are all likely to be the, to the left of most of the other people who are in Congress at this point. So that's now become the basis for the opposition. So you've mentioned that there are some D.C. residents who are opposed to statehood. What do you think their arguments for that opposition would be? That's funny because the arguments are really comparable to the arguments that we used to hear down in the Caribbean about why people didn't want colonialism to end, why they wanted the British to stay. And that is, they feel that things are fine now. The things 
are being run very well now. What seems to be the problem? My life is good. Look, I now have a wider variety of restaurants that I can go to. The entertainment scene has expanded here in D.C. Life is good. Why bother? Why shake things up? Things are working well for me. And they feel that if D.C. gets statehood, then somehow things will change. Things for some reason won't be as good as they did before and so they go back to all kinds of arcane arguments about the constitution and this and the other but what you hear is invariably coming from people who are comfortable in their environment and who don't see any need to change and who fear that if there is change then they may not be quite as comfortable in their environment as they were before the status quo, as far as they're concerned, is fine. And they don't mind staying that way. Let me turn that around, though, because we could get together and say, we think these are the biggest problems facing Washington. We've got massive income inequality. We've got a very unaffordable cost of living for a lot of people. We've got displacement. We've got violence, etc. Most or many other similarly situated American cities have those exact same problems, and they have members of a state legislature and members of Congress and, and uh, so on. Would any of those things necessarily get better as a result of having statehood? I can't say for sure. I think the quality of life, will, as in general, will probably stay the same. But, you know, we have never been in a situation where the people of the District of Columbia feel empowered. And so it's difficult to predict exactly how that would change the city. But it will change it. And what I think you'll see, at least in part, is people more motivated to become active in the politics of the city. You'll see the civic environment in the city change, and I think that is likely to be an improvement on the situation that we have now. I think the whole push for home rule and the push for statehood have led to increased civic activity in communities in Washington, D.C., and if we were to have statehood, that will be expanding significantly. You know, Senator Namdi has a nice ring to it. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't. Retired broadcaster Namdi has a better ring. <laughs> <laughs> and it, well, and that, I was going to say that if you were Senator Namdi, I think one of the first things that would happen is, you know, you would see this shift in the electorate and what they're thinking about. And instead of thinking, well, we ought to get statehood, they're going to be thinking, gee, we ought to have stuff that's just as good as people in any other state. Yeah, plus I think you'd see a whole lot of people moving to Washington because people know that the quality of life here is, is a good one. The longtime consumer advocate and sometimes presidential candidate, Ralph Nader, lives in Washington, has lived here for probably most of the past 50 years, but maintains an address, a home address in Connecticut or someplace in another state. And he does that because he says, I want to be able to vote for my senators and members of Congress. I want them to have a vote in Congress. That's why I maintain that address. If we had stated here, I think you'd see a whole lot of people moving here because there are some people who don't live here precisely because they can't vote for their members of Congress and have a vote in the Congress of the United States. I think a lot of people would, you'd see the population of the city expand significantly if we were to get statehood. Do you see that influx of potential D.C. residents as like a good thing, like a, like a good 
aspect of what statehood would bring or like a negative or kind of like in the middle, we would have to wait and see? I think I would vary between good thing and in the middle. One of the things that people don't get and they would if we had stated and they came here is that they would understand how life in this community works and why it is that there are people who live here like me who don't want to go anyplace else, don't want to live anyplace else. You have a sense of belonging and community in Washington that you don't find in other places. And you have that because we are part of what they call the DMV, that there are suburbs of Maryland and Virginia that contain uh, as Dick Gregory used to say, goo gobs of people who work in Washington and see Washington as the center of their entertainment and cultural world. And so when people come to live here, they'll realize that this is not just a city or just a state. It's a part of a region that people feel very comfortable living in. And if they had the opportunity to live in the city itself and have congressional representatives who could vote in Congress, it makes it even more attractive. So, yes, I think one of the reasons why, you know, even my friends who live in the suburbs spend most of their spare time in the city itself. And that can be said for a lot of people in the region because this is what they want to come. And they don't come as tourists, they come as people who live around here who just like being in the city. Yeah, one of the things I'm really curious about is I'm sure you've seen all of these different attacks from Republican lawmakers always attacking D.C., can't keep D.C.'s name out of their mouth, even though they're not from here, have nothing to do with it. Yes, even though we have home rule, when we pass legislation, there's still a period of time that Congress can intervene. And when individual members of Congress feel like doing that, they will. That's why we have legal marijuana, but we can't regulate it because a Republican member of Congress simply decided that the district shouldn't be allowed to regulate marijuana because we have right now a Republican party that's essentially controlled by Donald Trump and as a result of which everybody has to essentially get in line or get kicked out and the more extreme the measure the more attractive it is it's so unserious and like how can we is there a way to fight back against that against what you just described where people with very extreme positions who are dead set on attacking home rule in the district how can folks fight back you know it's interesting because we look at different ways to fight back there was one activist in washington who moved temporarily to Maryland, where a particular Republican representative in Maryland has made it his duty to interfere in the business of the District of Columbia. But that D.C. resident who moved there went there for the purpose of campaigning against that Republican member of Congress and did campaign against him. And then Andy Harris won anyway. So (laughs) that strategy didn't work. There was a while when in pursuit of statehood, then D.C. Representative Walter Fontra tried to get statehood for the district ratified around the country, and it had to be ratified in 38 states in order to accomplish it. And so that strategy was abandoned when it became apparent that the rest of of the nation didn't know or care enough about the people who live in Washington to sign on. And so we evolved into this strategy of it being available by the 
we have a majority vote in the House and the Senate and a signature by the President if we could get it that way. That's how we got to that point. So, you know, the thing that has characterized Washington, D.C., the thing that has frankly characterized the existence of black people in this country is struggle. Okay, we struggle. And what we're involved in now is a multiracial struggle for statehood in the District of Columbia. And there is absolutely no reason to believe that regardless of who takes power, that struggle is going away. It's not going anyplace. And the extent to which discrimination and oppression against us increase is the extent to which the struggle will intensify, because we're not going anyplace at this point. Kojo, thank you so much for coming and talking to us. Hey, the pleasure was mine. Good to see you both. Talk to you later. And before you head out, here is some quick news. D.C. Council has voted to keep D.C.'s crime lab independent of the D.C. police. Mayor Muriel Bowser's budget proposal called for the lab to be absorbed into the MPD. The council felt that that would create a conflict of interest and compromise future investigations. They're still pondering oversight solutions to fix the troubled crime lab, which lost its accreditation in 2021. Meanwhile, the House of Representatives has made a last-ditch effort to block the so-called police accountability bill passed by the D.C. Council last year. President Joe Biden vetoed the Republican-sponsored resolution that would have blocked the bill. On Tuesday, the House could not muster the two-thirds majority needed to override a presidential veto. The vote fell mostly along partisan lines. It follows the recent trend of the Republican-led House interfering in local D.C. affairs. And finally, bears! The D.C. area has had another bear sighting this week. This time it was in Rockville. Officers are working with the Maryland Department of Natural Resources to find it. This is becoming a bizarre trend. A black bear was caught in Brookland in northeast D.C. last week. There was also a spotting in Hyattsville. And two months ago, another was captured in Montgomery County. The Brookland bear, incidentally, has been released into the wild, and that wild is not anywhere near Brookland. And that's all for today here on CityCast DC. If you enjoyed this show, make a fuss about it on Twitter. We're at CityCast underscore DC. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Bye.